The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The Wainwright Prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series, The Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing. Whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Dark Salt Clear, Life in a Cornish Fishing Town by Lamorna Ash, is a portrait of the Cornish town of Newlyn, the largest working fishing port in Britain. But it's far more than just a description of the life and challenges of this fishing port at the end of the Great Western train line. It is a personal journey that, in the words of one reviewer, melds history, literature and the highly personal into something far more complex and compelling than the evocative journey replete with poetry of the publisher's blurb thereby proving that publishers' blurbs don't always tell us the whole story. Lamorna, welcome to Planet Pod, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Your book, extraordinary title, Dark Salt Clear, perhaps we should start with that. Why the title and what does it mean? I didn't expect the hardest part of writing a book would actually be coming up with a title. And I was living in a flat in London that had almost a single glazing windows, but it was freezing cold at all times and I could hear the whole world happening outside. And I don't think I slept very well that whole year, but I'd spend these sleepless nights trying to work out what I wanted my title to be. And I'd sit there being like, okay, something to do with blue because it's about the sea or something to do with fish or guts or nets. And my publisher for a while, the joke title was Trawler Girl, which I was like, oh God, that sounds like a terrible superhero. And it's also, the book is, it's partly about me, but it's call it trawler girl which would be a terrible mistake and whilst I was in Cornwall uh, I'd taken Elizabeth Bishop's collected works with me and one of her poems at the fish houses it has this beautiful description of what she thinks the sea is and how it links to what she believes knowledge is and she describes them both as being dark salt clear moving utterly free and I just thought those three words were lovely because it says the sea without actually using the word and it just felt it kind of created that sort of dreamy uh feel that I have throughout the book and I like that it was about sort of literature as well. That's really interesting because actually that sums up the whole kind of tone of the book and and, and the reason I quoted from that reviewer is, is clearly you know publishers put what they put on the back to try and get us to pick it up but but actually this is so much of a personal journey for you isn't it but it, it, it blends all the things that are important to you and all of your different interests into that kind of lived experience that you had had in Newlyn. Um, I mean you're Cornish by heritage obviously why why Newlyn because there are so many places in Cornwall that that evoke some of those fantastic feelings and connections with the sea and what made you pick on Newlyn particularly? Well I was doing a master's in anthropology and you have to do for your thesis you have to do four weeks of field work and I had these incredibly grand ideas of places I wanted to go because I'd read so much wonderful anthropological literature that year and then the more I thought about it each of these places 
that the, the language they spoke wasn't English. And there's that big thing in anthropology where if you're asking someone to translate themselves back into English for you, you're already losing so much. And what I love about anthropology is it's had this sort of subjective turn of constantly questioning, why are you? Why are you in this place? And so I thought, okay, well, my family is from Cornwall. My mum, it's such an important part of her life is that she's Cornish. So why not try Cornwall? And we are from Lelant, which is um, almost exactly opposite. It's on the north coast and Newland's on the south coast. And I'd been to Newland a lot of times, but primarily just to pick up fish from the fishmongers. And I thought, okay, this could be really interesting. And I knew there was a lot of anthropology related to fishing. So I think Newland was the first fishing town that I knew of in Cornwall. And I knew stories about it. And I also had that kind of tantalizing thing of being told by supervisors at UCL that no one is very likely to get out on any boats in Newland. Um, because it's a tough community that won't really allow people in and that sounded like quite an exciting challenge to me. It was really just homework. <laughs> it was just homework yeah initially yeah. Yeah I mean Newland's a magical place for anyone who's been there I mean obviously there's a huge sort of history of artists and 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 you know a very evocative place to be but but you were experiencing some of that quite difficult challenging quite um, I don't know down and dirty almost going out on trawlers because trawlers are not necessarily um, easy places to be on are they and they're not easy boats to, to be on it's like not like going out on a fishing boat how did you get to go on the trawler itself and, and what did it feel like yeah I think I had this slight image of oh, not quite a cruise but I had this image of being like wow I'm gonna be at sea and it's gonna be lovely and be sunning myself on deck um so actually the first I went on two trawlers one for four days and one for eight days and the one for four days I just once I got into the community I was incredibly lucky because I lived with this couple uh, Denise and Lofty who sort of became like family and Denise very sadly died uh, passed away just in October but Lofty I still go back and see and talk to pretty regularly and because they're at the centre community they knew everyone and they'd take me around the pub and say this is Lamorna she's researching fishing take her out on the boat and Denise would say and if you do anything to her then you have to answer to me so I had this kind of amazing sense of being propelled around pubs and told this is this girl you're going to take her on a boat and I think the first boat had actually taken quite a lot of volunteers before, sort of sometimes students, sometimes artists. And I think for them, because fishing, there is a real monotony to it. So it was a nice variation for them to have someone else throwing up on the boat um, mm. that they could kind of laugh at a bit. And then the second trawler was the skipper called Don, who I knew a bit because I'd interviewed him already and had a very drunken interview with him in the pub. I think most of my interviews ended up being quite drunken because the fishermen would sort of, it would get kind of competitive drinking. I think I really learned how to drink well whilst I was in Newland. Um, and he said, I was like, do you think there's any chance I can come out on your boat? Like, I know that obviously it's going to be a really difficult experience and um, basically trying to sell myself as much as possible to, for the experience. And he's like, yeah, obviously, sure. Do you want to come next week? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, okay. So it was incredibly casual and I didn't have much time to think or worry or to kind of tell my parents and for them to think or worry before I was down at the harbour jumping on board. And was it really tough? Because it sounds from some of the descriptions of it must have been pretty tough. I mean, obviously you were seasick. Well, we would all be seasick, I think, in those situations. But what was what, what summed it up in terms of, of how it felt? I think it was definitely tough. And it's difficult because I'm really conscious of myself as being someone who rose tints past experiences. I like to box things and say, OK, that was a good time. And I think that was why it was really valuable, keeping a journal and trying to teach myself to be a bit more honest whilst I was out there, because I didn't. I really wanted to have a brilliant time on this boat. And the seasickness was, I think, the first thing that was incredibly hard because it's kind of embarrassing as well because you're the only one who's getting seasick. But once it had passed, I'd had this like just I'd been chopping carrots and had to run to the toilet and was in there for about an hour. 
and then came out a bit paler, but then was fine for the rest of the trip. But I'd say the hardest thing was it requires a lot of mental endurance because you're having to hold yourself away from the idea of the land for such a long time. And eight days has probably never felt longer, particularly as most of my days were spent gutting fish. And I have a tendency towards, I've had some depressive episodes in the past and I have really specific coping mechanisms. And I think it was four or five days into the experience, I was like, oh my God, I'm having a low day. What on earth do I do whilst I'm here? And suddenly the sea that had felt massive and beautiful and extraordinary felt claustrophobic and I felt kind of captured on board. And Don noticed, because you're with these people all day long, you can really notice the slight shift in mood. And Don kept trying to get me out of this mood by uh, <laughs> slamming tables really hard and shocking me and it did not work and I just got more upset. And um, eventually, I think just by the work and by the humour of the crew, I kind of came back out of it. And then had the most, the next day, it was November, but it was the bluest skies and I learned how to mend nets on, on board, um, on deck. And it was the most beautiful, extraordinary day. It was this amazing contrast where I was like, okay, few I've come out of this. And the rest of the trip was really wonderful. It was a fabulous experience. I mean, I'm very testing. I mean, not just being a young woman amongst presumably much older all-male crew, but also, you know, putting yourself in that place where you have nowhere to go, have you? Nowhere to run, you've got nowhere to hide. You're quite exposed. Um, was the, the work behind your project, did you think about, was that what you were aiming to do? Did you aim to go out on a trawler and experience the fishing? Was that what the project was? Or was, did this come out of wanting to write, write the book itself? So I guess I cut it into two distinct parts because the first part, it was my dissertation, my thesis was about the way that fishing had shaped time within this community. So the way that life is divided into kind of like the days spent on the boat and what that does to the community back on land and the way that this whole community depends on tidal time and the life cycles of fish and so that was when I was, that was what my, was kind of in the back of my mind the first time I went was like, how am I going to build up this argument? And then the second time, it did feel a lot more like I was just following kind of different leads. It felt, more, I suppose, more journalistic that someone would say, you've got to speak to this fisherman. And then I'd go after them. And I think there's a brilliant part of anthropology, which I, I think is amazing and I hadn't known about before, which is phenomenology or the kind of phenomenological it's so hard to say, phenomenological um, part of anthropology. So the fact that you, you can't understand something or without actually participating in it. So I think the fishermen had this really distinctive way of talking about fishing when they were on land and they mythologize it because of, of course they do and they talk about being these heroes of the sea. And it sounds kind of magical. And I thought, well, I'm not going to understand this unless I actually go out on the boat and I'm there with my hand also inside Ray at the same time as them and stinking of fish like them. So I think I knew that I had to go out on lots of boats to understand it. And it wasn't just trawlers, I went out on crabbers and ring netters and uh, single hand liners and all sorts of different kinds of boats. Fascinating. I mean, just, just such a different way of living from the way that you'd been living before and that you're presumably living at the moment, you know, back in London on the kind of book promotion tour. How much of how much of the book has been an exploration of yourself and how do you feel you've changed as a result of the journey that you've been on? Oh my gosh, that's a difficult question. I think the hard, the hard thing is because I was also writing as a 22 year old and I think I'm, I feel like I'm still, I've got so much to learn about pretty much most aspects of life. And I think I went there with this distinct sense of, I don't have a sense of belonging anywhere. My mum's from Cornwall and in London, because it's such a melting pot of different kinds of people. I'd sort of tethered myself to this idea of being Cornish. 
primarily my mum is from Cornwall and I have a Cornish name and that made me feel Cornish and as soon as I went to Cornwall I was like oh oh gosh I'm not at all Cornish and then and so I think it was a big wake-up call that you can't choose where you come from and you can go amongst the community and you can learn so much from it but you can't force yourself to be part of something and that's also exciting too because that doesn't mean you can't learn you can still learn so much from different people I think the big things that I learned from it mostly was from the sense of community that that they all look out for each other and terrible things happen people die at sea all the time and this community holds on to each other so carefully and I learned from Denise and Lofty I remember so well I think because I'd just come out of university and I'd done an undergrad and a master's and I was obsessed with kind of knowledge and I thought a conversation had to be about how much you knew and suddenly I'd sit there with Denise and Lofty and we'd just be talking about telly and nothing and yet I felt closer to them than I'd felt to maybe a lot of students I'd come across so I think I learned a lot about what it means to be a person kind of to trust yourself and just go okay this is who I am and I can add to that and I can gain through listening so much more than constantly trying to be the most knowledgeable person in the room. That's part of the journey, isn't it? And that's part of that kind of growing up experience. Do you feel more Cornish now than you did before? I don't know. I probably feel, (laughs) I feel more at home with being a kind of, uh, with being from London. And I I really value what it means to have grown up in, in a city like London. But I know that rather than being a place I'm from, Cornwall is a place I can go to. And I know now, you know, I've gone back to New Zealand multiple times since, and it's great to be able to text a few people and say, I'll meet you in the swordfish as soon as I'm there. And mm-hmm. so it becomes, I think, as you get older, your kind of map of places that, that matter to you grows, or at least that's what I'm hoping. And so I like that Cornwall has become, or New Zealand especially, has become one of those places that I can go back to, despite it not being somewhere that I'm from. So somewhere you belong, even though it's not necessarily home. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, is there a part of the book that you might be able to share with listeners to give them a sense of the book? Because, I mean, obviously we want them to go out and buy this, this beautiful book, but, but just, just share a, a, an extract with us. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, so this is a part of the book. It's about midway through. Um, it's when I'd been away from Cornwall for a little while and had spent, I had not been able to get over thinking about it. And I returned having had what felt to me like this huge sort of coming of age experience. And I went back to Newland and I saw the community again. And this is that part. So the day before I moved back to Newland, my dad and I head to Stevenson's to call in on Denise and buy some fresh fish. On our way in, a fisherman passes me, dragging a box of sloppy monkfish tails just purchased at the auction. Laid out on the three front counters are lemon and Dover soles, fat orange salmon fillets, pink gurnards and glistening shellfish with sprigs of parsley artfully arranged between the various fish. Above is a large blackboard with the morning's prices for crab sandwiches, wilks, cockles, prawns and mussels chalked up. I cannot see Denise, so bound over instead to Elaine who runs the shop. Elaine, hello, how are you, how's the shop? I say breathlessly. She looks at me, her eyes squinting. No, sorry, she says at last. I can't place you, my love. My arms fall to my sides and I look back at my dad sheepishly. We buy our fish and head back to Lelant, dad laughing at me all the way across the coast. We want to know places. When we begin to, we believe such knowing will be reciprocated, that our indentations on the landscape will hold so that those in future generations will continue to see traces of us upon that land. Through Newlyn, I learn there is value in being forgotten. 
Though the town felt a huge experience for me, I was a blip, barely even that, in the long lives of most of its residents. A kid with a smart London accent who stuck out like a sore thumb, who asked a few questions and then left again. The town went on without me. Of course it did, but somehow, naively, I thought it might not have. It's a fabulous extract, and I think you're absolutely right. It's almost like the kind of waters of the sea closing over us when we've we've stepped out, isn't it? And and yet you carry Newlyn with you wherever you go, so it doesn't really exist without you. You're there and yeah. part of you. So um, I have a really good secondary story to that extract, though. That I got a Facebook message recently from Elaine, uh, who owns or who is the she's in charge of Stevenson's the fishmongers and she said I read your book and really enjoyed it but I'm really sorry I have a facial recognition problem and I can't even recognize my neighbors and it's actually quite a problem and I was like oh no I'm so sorry for drawing attention to it and then using it as a fill of my book um but <laughs> I, definitely other people did forget me so the story still works but I thought it was quite it's amazing still valid but not entirely her fault no but she'll be quoting you in all of the pubs though because she's <laughs> yeah. famous and she's in the book um Obviously, you're on the, the, the shortlist for, for, for nature writing, UK nature writing. But do you think that, that your, the narrative has a, a part to play in the wider conversation about conservation, whether it's global or, or just in this country? And, and if it does, what, what would that be? I think it does. And I think so what I found really interesting is that it complicated my sense of industry and the impact that we have on the environment, because Again, growing up in London, where my image of fish is the sort of skinless fillet I find in a shop, I could more easily say, okay, I know that we're, we're ravaging the seas, so they should quit, all fishing should end, or at least it should be so much more carefully managed. And then you go to a community that entirely depends on fishing for its livelihood, and you understand that it's not that simple, um, and that there are ways to improve it, and there's people working really hard in, in Newland to do that. What I found really exciting was Although some of the older fishermen, there were some practices that I found frustrating and, and they are so frustrated by, for instance, the discards. So that the fact that because you have to hit quota, lots of excess fish that's perfectly good gets thrown over the side. But then the younger fishermen who are, tend to be day boaters, which has almost like a minimal uh, or a negligible impact on the seas. They are so conservationally minded and so aware of how can I continue this industry so that my children can do it and we won't be ruining the world that, that we're inhabiting. Um, so that felt really exciting to get to go out with some of those guys and see the way they were trying to fish. Yeah, I mean, obviously fishing is a very, um, it's a touch point, isn't it? It's a very complicated um, industry to get your head around and people feel quite, um, it polarises, I think, um, debates and certainly has polarised debates in the UK, um, particularly around things like Brexit. But but for a community like Newlyn, it's so embedded isn't it and it's ingrained in, in the skin of the people who live there almost that that you actually come to understand it in a different way and that that that's obviously very clear from what you've said do you um do you eat fish <laughs> as a result of being out on the trawler did it put you off <laughs> it's so we never ate fish on the trawler they actually i'm i'm a pretty much a vegetarian but on the trawler because they would make these incredible massive meals every single night and they never ate fish i think i ate fish for breakfast but apart from that no fish it would be sort of like sausages piled on burgers with a side of lamb chops and I felt it'd be so rude not to so I did eat meat for that week but definitely I'd, I'd come back from the trawler with these big bags of fish that I'd be given and then put them all in my freezer so I think whilst I was there I lived quite luxuriously on things like monkfish and John Dory um, and since then very occasionally I will I don't eat 
meat but I would eat fish maybe like every couple of weeks or something like that um but it, as you've it, actually it, fished for it maybe that's that I think that's entirely acceptable for a for a yeah vegetarian bordering on, <laughs> on pescatarian and yeah. yeah. um, where where do you do your writing I mean where did you write the book did you write the book um you know hold up in London in in cafes what's your kind of writing spot of choice so I wrote I started writing a lot whilst I was still in Newland so often after an interview I transcribe it quite quickly and then would try and write things so there's one um, I think the chapter that I care about the most is a chapter uh, with a geologist called Roger. And we walked along Newland Beach and he told me the history of Newland's uh, geology whilst also telling me his own kind of family traumas and life experiences in his own life. And it was, I, I can't explain, it felt so powerful, the whole conversation. And it was almost like I could see the written page before me. So I went straight back and typed it up and it's barely changed that chapter. And then the rest was written basically wherever I was. So a lot was in the British Library. Uh, then I was also at the time to try and earn uh, money whilst I was writing. I was doing quite a lot of tutoring. And at one point I was sent off to a Swiss family in, in a skiing village in, in Switzerland. And I was tutoring the kids in the morning. And then all afternoon I'd be sitting at a desk trying to write out the, the chapters about the trawler. I don't think I stopped writing. It felt like I sort of felt almost a sense of being possessed whilst I was writing the book because in my head I imagined it as a buried object the book and I knew that the shape of it was there and I just had to dig down to get it so I felt this like real intensity of knowing I just had to write and write and write until I found that shape um and it really was I don't think I was very good at talking to people for the whole year that I was writing because my head was just swarming with images and ideas and trying to and I think that's the difference from writing fiction is that if you know that the place already existed, I just had to draw it out and, and it was, or sketch it up. Well, thank you for, for, for digging so hard and uncovering it for us because it, it sounds like a beautiful book and thank you for sharing it and, and, and your thoughts behind it and your experiences. Um, it's been lovely to talk to you. Do you have a call to action for listeners at all that you, things that you feel people could do as a result of perhaps dipping into your book, hopefully buying your book, reading it, and what would it be? Well. So I think because I guess I sit on the boundary of nature and travel writing, but I've been thinking a lot about the how travel writing can be ethical. There's um, the writer Barry Lopez, wrote Arctic Dreams. He, in an interview, he described this thing of he went back to the Arctic and a, there were so many people there and a tour guide shook his hand and said, thank you so much. You've, you've given me a career. And he had that thing of being, oh God, you know, this, this book, it, you write to show people another world and yet also... By doing that, you might be allowing more people access that place and thereby changing it. So I think I've been trying to think a lot about how you can tell the story of places while also expressing the need to protect them. And I know that Cornwall experiences that so much because tourism both saves them, but also has decimated parts of communities and places where, where almost no locals live anymore. So I think my call to action would be that to listen to the people in places carefully. Don't just go somewhere and think about yourself as the center of it try and understand the people who live there try and listen to what their values are and what they want from you as well I think that's my biggest learning as I'm getting older is there's no I don't think there's anything more important than listening and particularly listening to people who you might assume you're going to disagree with brilliant call to action and a great skill for a writer and so we wish you um great luck with the with the prize um terrific well done for having your first book shortlisted for the Waymark Prize you. it's fantastic 
Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. It's been really nice talking. It's been lovely to meet you. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Dark Salt Clear by Lamorna Ash is published by Bloomsbury. And you can find details of it and other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up on interviews with the other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.